organization that what was interesting about that was that while the Air Force was fully behind the idea that we need a data officer, we need to be able to leverage our data and protect our data, we need to do it across all of our mission areas, and I had spent enough time in the Air Force that I had touched all these mission areas, uh, we're not going to give you a lot of money, there's no money, you know, and there's not a lot of people that we're going to give you to help. So <laughs> it was, you know, it's the way most organizations start out. Uh, it was a real startup kind of scenario. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, podcasters. This week, we're speaking with Major General Kim Kreider. She's an engineer and a mother who's had a 35-year career in uniform. She's also the U.S. Space Force's first chief technology and innovation officer. She's retired and out of uniform now and leading a new business and mission. Yes, many retired generals advise companies, and her organization, Alara Nova, does that for space companies. But she is also working with governments. That's plural. And those governments are aiming to develop their own space and defense capabilities. But first, we're going to get a readout from what happened at the 2023 NATO Summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, from my friend and Europe and NATO expert, Jim Townsend. You're going to hear him refer to a thing called Article 5. And just in case you have not heard that term before, Article 5 refers to the section of the North Atlantic Treaty that describes the obligations of collective defense. Essentially, an attack on one NATO member is an attack on all. And if such such an attack occurs, alliance members will collectively and individually take actions to assist the ally attacked. It's only happened once, and that was immediately after the 9-11 terrorist attacks on the United States. Without giving away more of the discussion with Jim, here's our conversation. Hi, Jim. Welcome back to the Downlink Podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, it's been so long since you've been on the podcast. I think it's really appropriate that you take a moment and briefly introduce yourself. Well, um, so I'm Jim Townsend, as you heard, and I spent uh, 30 some odd years working on Europe and NATO and the Pentagon. Uh, and now I've uh, been uh, continuing that work since leaving the Pentagon in 2017 and of various ways, uh, consulting and teaching um, and I'm the president of the Atlantic Treaty Association, the ATA, uh, and that's just the, it's, I'm busier now than I've ever been, which is unfortunate. But I have a podcast called Brussels Sprouts, which I think uh, your listeners who are interested in the transatlantic security uh, side of life might want to listen to. So thanks for letting me give it a give it a boost. So aren't you in Vilnius at the NATO summit and, you know, now that it's concluded and everyone is at the after party and, you know. What was the main overarching outcome of the NATO Vilnius uh, summit? Well, I, I, a couple of things, I guess. First, uh, despite some turmoil in uh, putting together the communique and another and other aspects of the summit that try to signal to the Russians and to Ukraine and to the alliance where uh, NATO stands vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, uh, despite some turmoil in, with those documents. It ended on a on an okay note. Um, I, I think the signal being sent is one that there's still unity in NATO, despite the disagreements 
between uh, some of the allies about the relationship between Ukraine uh, and NATO and when Ukraine can become a member. They, that was quite a struggle over that language. And you can see in paragraph 11 of the communique, a paragraph that is rather artless in terms of its drafting, um, they didn't describe that relationship very well. But they were able to fix that today at the NATO-Ukraine Council, uh, the speech that uh, Biden gave uh, at the university here in Vilnius, other tweets that came out of uh, Zelensky after his initial tweet took the alliance to task for being absurd about not giving membership to Ukraine uh, and NATO. Uh, here at, at Vilnius, it's been um, the alliance has said, look, you're going to be a member, but you got some more reform to do. So uh, so it's been a bit turbulent, uh, but I think it's ended on an OK note. But it began certainly on a great note, which was Sweden uh, being given the OK by Turkey and uh, and will join the alliance as soon as the paperwork is done. So so it started off on a great note. It hit turbulent weather, but um, it landed OK. Uh, everyone uh, got off the plane and they're happier than they were 24 hours ago. Excellent news. Well, there is also a little bit of space that was happening as well within the documents. And I was kind of wondering what substantively has changed since last year's summit? Well, I, I can't say that there's been a lot structurally uh, within NATO in terms of a committee or in terms of, of other initiatives that you can really put your, your finger on. Uh, there's been a center of excellence that was started up. Uh, there is uh, uh, some other bits of work here and there, but I think I think what has happened are two things. One is, um, and you've covered this on your on your show a couple of times. I think the alliance has seen now over the past year the importance of space and space as a domain that is critical to the, a ground and air campaign and naval too. That space has become much more important, and NATO has recognized that. A few years ago, you know, they made NATO, uh, NATO made space a domain uh, and um, to the point where if there's an attack in that domain on an ally's space capability, that can be seen as eligible for an Article 5. So it's a it's something that NATO has gradually uh, come to realize that the warfighting aspect of space and the importance of space as an enabler for uh, military operations. So what we've what we've seen since Madrid is in NATO's rhetoric um, a recognition of NATO needing to do more in terms of space, uh, and that uh, will probably have to be the nations themselves taking on more of a space capability. The French, the Brits, the U.S. are certainly the most advanced in terms of space, and so these nations particularly will lead at NATO on ensuring that that NATO has space capabilities when they need it, the way Ukraine has shown um, that it's got to be uh, part of your, uh, you know, of your kit when you go into battle one way or another, you're going to need space. Uh, and, uh, and Ukraine and has shown that be, in spades. And it's got to be interoperable. It's I mean, got to be interoperable. That's a big part of it. That's right. Yeah. It's got to be. It's got to be interoperable and it's got to be something that um, is continually updated. And, you know, for example, the satellite uh, capability, uh, so much has advanced in terms of small satellites, constellations. 
Starlink, we saw that um, importance uh, for Ukraine. So just in terms of satellites, um, the technology is changing quickly, and NATO nations need to make sure that the alliance has access to the latest satellite technology. You know what I also found interesting in in the communique was a paragraph near the end of it when it was talking about NATO and EU, and it said that we are further expanding our cooperation on resilience and protection of critical infrastructure, emerging and disruptive technologies, space, and then security implications of climate change and geostrategic competition. What I find interesting is that space, you know, made it into that discussion as well, that they're not just seeing this as, you know, NATO and through the political military alliance, but they see it as NATO EU. That's that's a very interesting point. It is, and a very important one. And I think what you just read off is an example of since Madrid, you see space included in the laundry list of capabilities, resiliency, priorities, and things like that that is in there. But your point about the EU is particularly important because for the Europeans, and like the French, uh, the EU space capability, the EU emphasis on space as well for European nations, that's got to be and- part of, of a cooperative uh, relationship with NATO. It doesn't make any sense for the EU and for NATO to have their own separate space capabilities. It's too expensive for them uh, to not do it together. Oh, and there's that. And just to sort of clue the listeners into this, I mean, if they remember last year in 2022, just in the very early hours of the morning that Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, Russian cyber forces attacked Viasat, which is a U.S. company, but they attacked their uh, terminals in Europe. And in doing so, they were able to actually shut down a German wind farm, which would be considered critical infrastructure as it generates electricity. Right. So, yeah, I found that just sort of a really interesting um, paragraph there. Anything else that you uh, think we should know coming out of the summit? Yeah. uh, So one of the things that the summit rolled out publicly, and I don't think it's been picked up because of the uh, Ukraine-NATO relationship issues and Sweden coming in. Um, But what was rolled out was the uh, NATO military plan, uh, where we're going to have something similar to what we knew during the Cold War, which are regional plans um, that are uh, developed to help improve deterrence against Russia with having forces uh, on the line. This is something along the frontier. This is something that we did during the Cold War, but not after the wall fell. Um, and But now we've got actually forces deployed and the plans to put them into uh, into operation if there was an attack. Um, they're classified, so we didn't get copies of them. But the in the communique, it said that it was approved. So what that means for space is that, unlike the Cold War, I think, um, there is going to be a lot of space demand. A lot of space demand. And and like you point out, it's got to be interoperable. Um, It's got to be ready. It's got to be up there right now. Uh, And uh, and nations need to know how to use that space capability. It can't be left up for the larger allies or for the the U.S. thing. This is going to be something all the allies need to be familiar with. And I see that NATO increasingly is going to have to have a much more... uh, uh, a much broader and deeper uh, space operation than they have today. They, de- they depend on the nations to have space operations, but I think NATO is going to have to have its own as well. 
And I think as we get the allies up there on the on the lines and we begin to exercise those forces and we begin to try to get their readiness levels where they need to be, space is a critical part of that. So if there is uh, space industry or space experts who are interested in uh, what NATO was doing uh, in terms of deterrence, uh, it'd be, it'd be, it's, now's the time to get to Brussels or to shape in Mons and find out uh, what the space requirements are and to see how they might want to play. Jim, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It's great to be here, and uh, it's great to be part of this this very famous podcast. <laughs> You're too much. Thanks. Now, this next segment is the interview with Kim Kreider. Of course, I was interested in her new company, Alar Nova, but I really wanted to know about her career trajectory. Because in 1986, when she graduated from Duke University with an engineering degree in her hand, only 14% of all engineering graduates in the United States were women. Even fewer accepted commissions with the United States Air Force. So with that as a starting point, I wanted to know, just what was her path to becoming the first Space Force Chief Technology and Innovation Officer and founding partner in a new business? Here's our conversation. Hi, Kim. It is so wonderful to have you on the Downlink podcast. Hi, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. You know, Kim, you are so well known inside of the space circles, defense circles, Air Force circles. Um, but my audience is quite, you know, wide and varied. So please take a moment and introduce yourself, you know, like who you are, where you come from, you know, where, what you're doing now. Um, yeah. Tell us. All right. Thank you. Let's see. Well, where do I come from? So I was born and raised in Miami, Florida. Um, went to high school there. You know, grew up in a large family, uh, three brothers and a sister, and uh, loved being from Miami. You know, Miami is quite a diverse and vibrant. Uh, but what's so exciting about Miami is the business environment, the culture, um, the academic environment, you know, very multicultural you know, of course, a lot of Latin American influences there, Haitian influences there. It's it's really a phenomenal city. Uh, so enjoyed that. Um, went to school and did my undergraduate work. It uh, went a little bit further north. I went to Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and uh, really enjoyed that. Duke is a fabulous university. I studied electrical engineering. And why engineering? I mean, we talked back then, there weren't too many women that were signing up for engineering, were there? This is true. There weren't too many women in my classes, as I recall. Um, yeah, you know, I was, uh, I was always a very focused student in high school. I excelled in all of my classes, uh, English, science, math. Um, but for whatever reason, as I was you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life, um, I really started to gravitate toward engineering. Just the whole idea of how do things work? You know, how do systems work? How do you how do you get a function to work? How does software work? You know, that was back in the very early days of computer science, and there was computer science degrees uh, that some of my colleagues were taking at Duke as well. Uh, I I grafted more towards engineering at the time because I was more interested in you know how do you take you know at the time what were you know software was very nascent 
you know, back then. Well, it was basic programming. It was basic programming. Yeah, I did summer camp in, with basic, yeah. yeah. I mean, people who are listening or, you know, about 15 years younger than you and I are going, what are they talking about? Yeah, I mean, but, we yeah. just started but when they were doing But you could just make stars. something. It was like, you know, a celebration. Exactly. Every little thing was a celebration. And of course, when it didn't work, it was like tragedy of, you know, your system didn't work or your software function didn't work. Uh, but I was just always really interested in how do you take software and hardware and all the components and bring them together and actually turn them into a product that could actually do something, you know. Uh, so I enjoyed that, and I really enjoyed engineering. Now, I, I had a degree in electrical engineering, which is a little bit more esoteric than some of the other engineering programs, but I was an ROTC student at Duke as well. Um, so I went to Duke on an ROTC scholarship, um, for the, with the Air Force. Um, I didn't grow up in a military background. I really had no military uh, background in my family. So I went to Duke on this ROTC scholarship. Uh, that led to my first assignment uh, in the Air Force. Uh, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Uh, but off I went, and I, <laughs> I showed up at my first job at Hanscom Air Force Base. Uh, which is a small base, still exists today, about 20 miles outside of Boston. Interestingly, uh, my career was kind of bookend by the fact that my very first job in the Air Force as a brand new second lieutenant um, acquisition officer, so I, I came into the Air Force with my engineering background, but assigned to the acquisition career field as a program manager. And Hanscom is where they do a lot of engineering of command and control systems. So my very first job happened to be working command and control space systems. They were doing space systems command and control. Did you at just Hanscom like like fall then. into that, or did you fell request it? Or? I had no idea. I had no idea. I mean, I I couldn't spell acquisition, you know, and I had no idea what. But you could wire it. I could. Oh, sure. I could. I could figure <laughs> it out one way or another. But um, but yeah, I didn't know anything about the fact that. The Air Force was involved in space command and control systems, uh, and we were doing that work at Hanscom. Well, and the system was being delivered to Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado Springs. So this was in the mid-'80s. Cheyenne Mountain was going through its a major upgrade at the time, and I was involved in putting in place some of those systems that still exist today. Ouch. Ouch, right? It's taken a long time to get to the point where we're upgrading these systems. We're, we're, we are now, but yeah, these systems are definitely, you know, on their last leg. Um, but yeah, I was involved in getting those systems in place, which is kind of crazy to know that I did that. And that, you know, come full circle, you know, and I, I ended up my career with the, with the stand-up of the Space Force. So I started in acquisition, uh, spent um, in my formidable years there as a young lieutenant, young captain, I was leading you know, major programs. I fell in love with the Air Force, even though I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. Uh, I fell in love with the Air Force. I fell in love with program management um, and leading teams, leading small teams. I had teams of engineers that were you know, twice my age and certainly well more experienced than I was. But I was smart enough to know as a young officer that uh, you know, my success in being able to lead that team that I was responsible for was going to be how well I listened and learned uh, and took advice from, you know, the wise people that were around me and knew, you know, knew what we needed to do. And my job was just to sort of help guide it all to the, uh, through the finish line. 
So I love that. I mean, I just loved being a, a team leader and I loved helping to deliver some systems. I got to work on some really cool stuff that I'll, I'll talk about here. Not just the space command and control stuff was super cool, but then I got to be in charge of a program that was standing up a um, command and control system in Puerto Rico. I got to spend a lot of time in Puerto Rico as part of this. Oh, uh, you're just like hanging out at the beach yeah, a lot. Yeah, right? Being from Miami, I got to travel you know, through Miami onto Puerto Rico and practice my Spanish with all my friends. And uh, But this was part of, um, you remember we had that war on drugs and Caribbean Basin Radar Network was a big thing. Um, so the Air Force was working very closely with the Drug Enforcement Agency at the time. And I was responsible Again, leading the team, delivering the capabilities into the what we call the Puerto Rico Operations Center, uh, right outside of San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, and then a bunch of other things. I was working uh, early in my career during that time frame on joint mission planning systems and uh, coalition mission planning systems that pilots use to plan their missions. I was working very closely with several NATO countries at the time. Uh, so I got to travel a lot to Europe and different parts of Europe uh, to do those things, Norway in particular, uh, and Spain, and goodness, um, other parts of, of uh, Europe. So it was really a lot of fun. Just had a, a great time as a young officer and just really enjoyed uh, the Air Force and what I was doing. Um, and, and in your career with the Air Force, I mean, were you always involved in space? Well, no. So. Again, as an acquisition officer, I was bouncing around to a variety of different programs. Started out in space command and control, then I was working this, you know, ground-based, you know, air surveillance system is essentially what that Puerto Rico uh, operation center system was. It was air surveillance uh, to kind of watch for small planes, you know, flying around. Uh, joint mission planning and coalition mission planning systems were for pilots as they were doing their planning for their, you know, different missions. Uh, all software-based systems, of course, but um, not all space, you know, not all oriented towards space. Fast forward a little bit, and I was dating a guy there at Hanscom, and he had a job that was going to take him to Hawaii in his career. He had a different career path than I, do, I did, and so he was going to go to Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii, and that wasn't on my, necessarily on my career path of things that I could do. So I had to make a decision, and I made a, an important decision at that time to leave active duty Air Force and go right into the Air Force Reserve, leave the regular Air Force, uh, resign my commission as a regular officer, and assume a commission very next day, because I still love the Air Force, very next day as a reserve officer. Again, not really have any idea what I was getting into. You know, I hardly knew much about the Air Force at that time. I knew much less about the Air Force Reserve. But I go into the Air Force Reserve. It sounded like an interesting opportunity because I could go to Hawaii, got married, went to Hawaii, and started now a kind of a different career field in the Air Force as a communications officer. So I went from acquisition to now more operationally oriented comm, like helping units across the Pacific communicate, implement their communication systems that had been procured from and acquired you know, by folks at Hanscom and elsewhere, and how do you get those in the field? How do you actually get them to work? How do you get your unit folks trained on them? How do you integrate with other systems from other countries or other forces uh, around the Pacific? So that was a fabulous uh, career change for me. Uh, so I spent four years there at, Han at Hickam in Hawaii, but traveled all over the Pacific. You know, I was in Guam and Korea 
Japan, major exercises, Alaska, uh, just really trying to figure out how do you build out these comm systems and how do you translate what we're doing into requirements for future needs that we could then translate back to the acquisition community. Uh, and I love that, right? So now I'm a comm officer in the Air Force, but again, not, not oriented around space at all, just ground-based communications for the most part. And uh, I'm kind of following along in my career. I'm now a reservist, which meant I was part-time Air Force and part-time not Air Force. I had a, a few side gigs of fun things that I was doing. I was the director of training of all things for Hilton Hotels Hawaii. So I ran training programs for leadership and executives all over Hawaii. You know, one day, I'm, and I realized this, you know, one day I'm walking around the, the resort where I worked. And I'm just thinking to myself as a young, you know, 25-year-old, I've already had this amazing early career in the Air Force, and I have this fun reserve career, and now I'm hanging out at the resorts in Hawaii and getting paid for it, and I'm pinching myself going, how did this happen? <laughs> but there I was, you know, living, living my best life in Hawaii. Along comes my first child. My daughter was born in Hawaii. And, you know, I just kept going, and my career just continued to evolve. I was sort of keeping pace with my friends that were still regular Air Force. You know, what were they going to do next? Maybe I should kind of do that next if I wanted to keep growing as a military officer. So I volunteered to go to school full-time, which would have been the next thing that you would do in your career. Uh, and, you know, I applied. I didn't know if I'd get accepted. Not all, very few reservists do. But I applied, uh, I was accepted, and I went to school full-time as a reserve officer at what we call Air Command and Staff College in Montgomery, Alabama. Yep, Did that for I've a year. I've been there, I know it well. Yeah, uh, and during that time frame when I was at school at Air Command and Staff College, my son came along. So my son was born two weeks after I graduated from that school, uh, and at that point, um, my husband decided that he wanted to retire. He had kind of hit the 22-year mark uh, of his career. And I decided I didn't want to retire or, you know, leave the Air Force specifically, so I just kept going. Uh, we moved to the New England area, which is here where he's from. We bought a home in New Hampshire. Uh, and he took a job working for the government, um, pretty steady job, didn't require a whole lot of travel. And he just said to me, just do what makes you happy. So I, great, so we have this you know, family unit uh, in New Hampshire. At the time, I was working full-time now as an engineer for MITER. I was an engineer for the MITER Corporation, doing some great work, supporting the Air Force, doing a lot of fun engineering things, wide variety of programs. Not space yet, <laughs> but, <a laughs> but wide, we're getting there. <laughs> a wide variety of programs, and uh, I'm still doing my, um, Air Force Reserve career. Spent some time at the Pentagon, got to work with Harry Radege in support of him when he was the DISA director, and I was helping him reorg um, all of DISA. I realized that that- And DISA is, just for everybody who doesn't yeah, know. Yeah, thanks. DISA is the Defense Information Systems Agency. So again, I'm still a communications officer. I'm very much in getting involved in all the communications agencies now of the Air Force and the larger DOD community and still helping the Air Force figure out how it's gonna do communications better. But when I was working for General Radege at 
DISA, Defense Information Systems Agency, responsible for all information systems and communications uh, capabilities across all services, and especially joint communications. General Radigue was doing a lot of uh, reorganization at the time, and because I had had this background in training, and, you know, working in industry a little bit when I was at Hilton, uh, I realized that, you know, I really enjoy some of these people activities. You know, I'm, yes, I have an engineering background. Yes, I love engineering and technology, but I also have a skill in helping people figure out how to, how to work better together. How do, how do you engineer organizations? How do you engineer outcomes within an organization? How do you get organizational culture to kind of work, you know, to your competitive advantage? So it was during that time that I was helping General Radigue think through how to create the kind of culture he needed for his a very large global organization to be effective that I realized there's something in this overlap between engineering and technology and human performance and organizational performance that I'm in the middle of and it's kind of like a superpower you know it's kind of like you could take things things and people and put them together and get them to work and and that I think has been a key component of my career uh, in my ability to be successful in my career is the ability to help drive outcomes, you know, between people and things. Uh, so anyway, fast forward from there, and Air Force is continuing to evolve um, in terms of its communications capabilities. Uh, I was doing communications in a variety of different locations, including in my Air Force Reserve career. One of the next stops on, along my journey was in Europe, and I took a job. Uh, in a requirement shop helping USAFE, United States uh, Air Forces in Europe, figure out how they were going to do more effective command and control and communications uh, and what kind of capabilities they needed with NATO. And I, in fact, spent a lot of time at NATO headquarters uh, in both Brussels and Den Haag where they were building command and control systems, helping to figure out how would these communication and command and control systems need to work? How would they work with the Air Force systems for controlling and uh, operating uh, air operations around the globe? This is when the AOC, the Air Operations Center, was just coming into the you know, forefront. And I was helping to figure out how that would work in conjunction with NATO nations, which was really cool. Um, NATO is fun, isn't it? It was fun. It's great because of all the different nations. The diversity. Everybody, the diversity in that everybody is really just sort of picking up an oar and moving yes. in the same direction. Absolutely. Now, it's not without challenge because you have a lot of different nations that are all trying to, you know, agree on things because, well, there's a lot of common uh, principles. You know, there's definitely different, pr unique perspectives on how you get that done. So it was always interesting. Again, Things and people, how do you get them to work together? Uh, which I always enjoyed. So doing that kind of work, one of the other hallmarks of my career was that I would always raise my hand for what I thought would be interesting and fun things to do. And so raising my hand to you know, be part of this work at USAFE where I got to work with NATO and do all that stuff was really great. And what that led to was go to Air Combat Command when it was doing air C2 ISR, command control, uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance activities. How do you integrate all of that uh, and figure that out? Great. 
Then that led to, raise your hand, because now the Air Force wants to figure out how it's going to do cyber operations. Cyber was now becoming a thing. This whole idea of, well, if we're going to have all these command and control systems and these intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance systems that have to all talk to each other, and we have to talk to our NATO allies or our Pacific allies in these systems, what if these systems get compromised? What if the software gets hacked? Uh, what if the data is breached? You know, we were just starting to think about, you know, these risks. What year was this? This was 2000, I mean, when it was really becoming a real rich conversation, it was 2005, six, seven time frame. And at the time, and there then, was a lot going on in the world, especially with the United States. Yes. So it's, communications, yes. command and control, right. and ISR, we had heard about it was like right. everything. And we had just started to hear about, you know, these real risks, cyber risks to these systems. If you recall, back in that time frame, Estonia, right, some of their command and control and uh, information systems had been hacked. Uh, and that was a big thing. And people were going, this is real. There's something really going on here. Now. It was still a term and a concept that not a lot of people understood. I mean, I remember being in meetings with folks and they were talking about cyber as this big esoteric thing and cyber being a man-made domain and what does all that mean? But people were becoming more and more keen to the fact that our systems could be at risk and those risks could come from nefarious actors hacking their way in and disrupting state and non-state actors. Our operations, Absolutely. right? Yep. Distributed denial of service, you know, system goes down, not being able to have connectivity, whatever the case may be. Or, you know, inserting some sort of malware. Again, many of these concepts were relatively new to a lot of people, but people were becoming more and more understanding of them. So they're asking for folks that wanted to help the Air Force think about how it would stand up an Air Force Cyber Provisional Command. We were going to have a major command in the Air Force focused on cyber operations. How are we going to do protect our systems? And I had been at Air Combat Command. We all understood the concerns relative to the threat. Air Force Reserve Officer, I raised my hand again and I said, sure, I'll go to Barksdale Air Force Base, which happened to be the place that the Air Force picked for this provisional activity. Now, granted, I still have a full-time job with MITRE. So I'm still MITRE engineer in New Hampshire. Well, my MITRE job was near Hanscom in Massachusetts, but I live in New Hampshire, have a family, <laughs> and all of that. You know, two young children growing up and doing my reserve work. Anyway, uh, cyber provisional, we're trying to figure it all out. Everybody's concerned about it. But then in that time frame, if you may recall, there was this big event that happened in the Air Force where there were some nuclear weapons that were unaccounted for on B-52 aircraft, right? And it led to and there were other issues that were going on in the nuclear community that required a lot of attention by the Air Force leadership and the OSD leadership uh, that led to not a stand-up of, well, led to a lot of things, but not a stand-up of an Air Force Cyber Command, but Air Force Global Strike Command, so that the Air Force could have a focus on its nuclear surety, which is absolutely critical. It's the most critical mission that the Air Force has, is nuclear surety. Uh, and so and it was quite a coincidence, right? Here we are at Barksdale Air Force Base, which is the home of the B-52, which, you know, many of these kinds of things, you know, weapons are flown in and out of. Uh, and this is now Barksdale, the headquarters of Air Force Global Strike Command, not 
the cyber provisional that we thought was going to stand up. Kind of interesting how that played out. Mm. But anyway, so here I am trying to figure out what's next in my career. I had done a lot of really cool things, been all over the world, Pacific, Europe, traveled all over uh, the place and thought, you know, Latin America, thought, okay, well, maybe this is the end of my road. Maybe I've done all the cool things I could do. And I'm a colonel at this point, you know, and had, you know, rich career and two kids now, you know, coming into high school and, uh, you know, still a systems engineering job. And I literally thought I was going to retire at that point in time, 2009, 10 time frame. I actually put my papers in to retire. And as luck would have it or coincidence or karma, I don't know what it was would have it, but literally 60 days before I was due to retire, I get a phone call out of the blue from a woman who I had never met, who became a good friend of mine, a brigadier general in the uh, Air Force Reserve. And she called me up and she happened to be a space officer and she was on detail working a special assignment, working administrative support to the Air Force, Air Force Reserve. And she happened to be sitting in a job where she was responsible for signing off on people's orders that would be retiring, helping to process those through the system. So I get this phone call in the blue, and this woman says to me, Brigadier General says, you know, Kim, I don't know you, never met you. I'm looking at your record. You've done a lot of really great things. You've worked, you know, in, in acquisition. You've worked in comm, now cyber. It's such a really important uh, field for us, Air Force, you know. And why are you retiring? <laughs> and so she said, you know, you're, you're still relatively young in your career. You probably have a lot of runway to go. Uh, if you want to retire, I will definitely sign your paper. I'm just wanting to know, you know, we don't have a lot of women, you know, that are staying in <clears throat> at the time. We, we'd like to see more women in more senior positions. Why are you retiring? And I, you know, I just kind of gave a mealy mouth answer because, you know, I didn't really want to retire. It just sort of felt like a good thing to do at the time. And at that moment, I guess I just realized that, wow, maybe this is like some sort of sign not to retire. <laughs> you know, my husband had been suggesting, don't retire if you really don't want to. You know, other mentors of mine, you know, not sure why you would want to retire. There's still a lot more things you could do. And, you know, as a mom, you know, I just always sort of felt this tug of war of career and, you know, family and trying to balance it all. But I really didn't want to retire. So I pulled my papers. Uh, the Brigadier General that I that you know I spoke to, I called her back up and I said, "I'm not going to retire." And she said, "Great, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to do great things." Well, that didn't really mean anything other than, okay, now I'm not retiring. I'm going to have a job, I guess. Maybe we'll see what I'm going to do next. Well, it turns out that during that time frame, we were going to do this Air Force Cyber Provisional job. I was very much on the ground floor of figuring out what that was going to look like. When they decided to stand up Air Force Global Strike Command, all of that Air Force cyber responsibility went to Air Force Space Command in Colorado Springs. Air Force Space Command took on the responsibility for cyber mission in the Air Force. So when I didn't retire, I was asked, would I be interested, because I was one of the few people that understood cyber from an Air Force uh, perspective, would I be willing to go to Air Force Space Command and help them figure out how to do the cyber mission that they had now acquired. So I said, okay. <laughs> so I went out there, and the next interesting thing that happened was the individual that I was there as the reserve counterpart to, full-time active duty person, and I was the part-time reservist that would help out 
come in and come out and, and support him, he told me he was going to retire. And he was definitely going to retire. He was like, I'm retiring. I have my paperwork. Not going to be like you and Paul's right. papers. Back. I'm retiring okay. literally in two weeks. Can you stay for like the next three months to take over this job? Because the next person is not coming for another three months. And we're going to be have a gap. So, so I called my family up, who were all really supportive. You know, I was always the one worried about the kids. The kids were like, Mom, we're fine, you know, don't worry about us. Then they were so excited that I had this opportunity. My son used to call. Well, at the time, I was, I was not uh, a general officer. I was a colonel, but I was sort of on a track to become a general officer. So anyway, I, call, I called home, and they said, Hey, uh, you know that great job that I just got at Air Force Space Command to help them with their cyber mission? It just got greater. It just became a much greater thing. And here's the great news. And it was good. I mean, it was fine. And it was over the summer. So the kids were out of school, and they would come out and hang out with me, and we got to spend a lot of time doing stuff in Colorado. But I was responsible now for standing up the numbered Air Force that was going to conduct cyber operations. I mean, there were people down in San Antonio. That was their day-to-day job, commanding it and leading it. But at the headquarters level in Colorado Springs, I had to oversee all of that and coordinate all of that and all the other things that Space Command was responsible for Air Force-wide for the Air Force network and everything else that had to happen. This was huge. <laughs> and I was like the senior Air Force, communi- what they call communicator. I was the senior communicator in terms of getting all of these operations going and figuring out how that was going to work with the Air Force CIO, chief information officer, who was a three-star. And I was a, like a colonel, almost a one-star. So that kind of got me back to the space. That got me to the space community and into you know, the space arena. And I got to, at that time, I was working hand-in-hand, side-by-side, even though my focus was cyber and communications, everybody else was kind of doing space things. And space obviously has cyber concerns, but at the time, everybody was trying to figure out, okay, how does cyber relate to me? How does cyber impact my mission area? Space was, a lot of people in the space community were very focused on making sure they had enough resources for all their space assets. So there was oh, a lot of... Oh, that's always been a, always, uh, yeah. a, a push and pull. Push and, and pull. And for sure. So there's I mean, a lot it of continues push and pull. To, today. And at the time, I was working side by side with the guy who was responsible for building the budget for the space, Air Force Space Command was, at the time, Brigadier General Jay Raymond. Yeah. And so he and I became, you know, colleagues, you know, co-workers. He, would, he was what we call the eight, the A8... And I was the six, the A6, and you know we had to work together on a lot of things. And, and several other leaders uh, that I got to know during that time frame. Brigadier General D.T. Thompson, who's now the Vice Chief of Space Operations, was there during that time, and he was the five uh, in charge of requirements. Um, and fast forward from there, uh, I'm still, <laughs> you know, family in New Hampshire. I've got my full-time you know, job still, but I started to wind down from that because now I'm feeling like, okay, the Air Force is asking a lot more of me and I'm enjoying doing it and I'm spending time away from my full-time job over here you know, so I can spend more time in Colorado. I pulled myself away. I, I left MITRE after about 15 years doing that. Uh, the Air Force then asked me to come back on as the Air Force Chief Data Officer. So not only had cyber become a really important area mission for the Air Force and a concern. But fast forward a little bit, the Air Force figured out data is now a critical thing and a concern because, yes, we need to be able to protect our networks. We need to protect our systems from attacks, you know, 
uh, from a cyber standpoint where you could just get into the system and disrupt the system or get into the software and disrupt the software. But what we're really concerned about uh, and what we've always been concerned about is can they get to the data? Can they exfill the data? Can they Can modify the data? It. Can they spoof the data? So not only are we worried about are our systems just protected from intrusion, but are they protected from data exfill or data uh, poisoning, right? So data became a can big thing. Can you trust what you're getting? Can so you, you trust can actually what you're getting? Make, make right. correct decisions. Right. Maybe the nefarious actor is inside our system. We didn't see them get in. They broke in, but we didn't see them get in. Now they're in, and they're messing with our data. That's a problem. It's a big concern. So data became a big concern. And not only how do you protect the data, but how do you use the data that you have, that you do trust, that is protected? How do you use it to your advantage? Are we really leveraging our data as a strategic asset, as an entity, to give us some competitive advantage? Are we learning from our data? Are we analyzing our data? Are we really appreciating the information that we have in front of us to give us insights into how we're going to operate in what's becoming a very competitive, dynamic, rapidly changing competitive environment? So the Air Force said, hey, we need a senior leader, somebody who's you know general officer level, uh, who could help us stand up a data office, an office that's completely focused on data. We want a chief data officer. And they, you know, they were looking around for folks, and they kind of saw, somebody saw my resume and said, well, what about General Kreider? She's been, you know, in industry. She's done a few things. She's got this, you know, long career in the Air Force. She understands the Air Force really well. She's been in all these different areas, specific, you know, Europe, cyber, you know, Puerto Rico, Hawaii. All these things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, they asked me if I'd come on board full time and be a data officer for the Air Force. And I said, sure, <laughs> I'd love to do that uh, because it's a big job that is, has such a great need. I would really value you know, having the opportunity to contribute to that. And uh, that required me to spend a year in Washington, D.C., working at the Pentagon, standing this uh, organization up. What was interesting about that was that, while the Air Force was fully behind the idea that we need a data officer, we need to be able to leverage our data and protect our data, and we need to do it across all of our mission areas, and I had spent enough time in the Air Force that I had touched all these mission areas, uh, we're not going to give you a lot of money. There's no money, you know, and there's not a lot of people that we're going to give you to help. So. <laughs> It was, you know, it's the way most organizations start out. Uh, it was a real startup kind of scenario. But we figured it out, you know. We figured out how to make it work. Um, I actually look back on that, and I think that that was one of my, that and when I did the work with the standing up the Space Force, were one of the toughest jobs, some of the toughest jobs that I had, but they were the most rewarding, you know, because you didn't have a whole lot to work with, so whatever you created, you know, you, and you made successful, you could be really, really proud of. And a lot of things we started were adopted at the OSD level, you know? So really got the recognition and helped lay the groundwork for data across uh, the Department of Defense. Well, then again, I thought, okay, my time is done. It's time for me to, you know, move on and do different things in my life. I get a tap on the shoulder from my good friend, now General, four-star General, Jay Raymond. And Jay Raymond is now the commander of Air Force Space Command. And he says, Kim, you know, I'm really, I'm so into what you're talking about with regards to the need to be able to let better leverage data. 
can you come out to Air Force Base Command? Because I really want to, you know, have a very effective data strategy and architecture for how we're going to pull all this data together from space so we can better understand the space domain and the threats to our capabilities in this now warfighting domain that we're talking about. So I said, okay, I could do this. You know? <laughs> and this was like probably the fourth or fifth time that I had said to my family, I'm going to retire. <laughs> By this point, they were just like, whatever, mom, just when you're done, you're done. Just let us know. <laughs> <laughs> so off I go back out to Colorado, and now I'm leading all of the data initiatives for Air Force Space Command. Fast forward a little bit, unbeknownst to everybody, we now are going to have a United States Space Force. I mean, there was some planning that was going on behind the scenes, some discussions that were going on behind the scenes. I was involved in some of that because I was one of the senior leaders at Space Command at the time, Air Force. Before we stood up a Space Force, the audience may not remember this, but we stood up United States Space Command because the recognition that space is a warfighting domain, there's threats to our systems in space. And that it's a geographic command. It's a geographic command. It's a big environment that needs to it's be protected. It's the biggest geographic command. Absolutely. With a lot of assets up there that uh, you know are providing important support and mission support to uh, other joint operations. Satellite communications, position navigation, timing, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. We have to be able to protect these assets. We have to understand the domain, all that domain awareness, data, activity. And work on deterrence. And work on deterrence. So the decision was made, first and foremost, that we were going to have a United States Space Command, a combatant command that could employ these capabilities to be able to operate you know, in space and through space and from space in support of joint operations very effectively. You know, a couple months later... The government, the president in particular, and you know, at that national security level, decided we we're going to have a United States Space Force. So between the president and Congress, there was this decision: we're going to pass a law, we're going to have United States Space Force, and that was in December of 2019. U.S. Space Command stood up in August of 2019. Space Force 2000 uh, in December. Space Force would then be the service, the predominant service responsible for organizing. The people, bringing the people into the service, training those people, and equipping them with capabilities from the acquisition uh, community to be able to employ, present, and then employ by U.S. Space Command. So organize, train, and equip is a service responsibility, and then employment in operations is the combatant command space force. They go, U.S. Space Command, they go hand in hand. Well, because I was a senior leader and happened to be, you know, predominantly living in Colorado Springs at that time. And now we've got Space Command that needs senior folks that have space background and U.S. Space Force standing up in Washington, D.C. that need, you know, senior folks, senior folks in space <laughs> background. Uh, and, oh, by the way, we still have a mission to do every single day while we're standing up these new entities. Uh, we need you, General Kreider, stay here in Colorado, run the day-to-day -day stuff while we stand up, you know, these new these new organizations. So I did that. So now I'm like the senior like space command leader uh, of what was, you know, Air Force Space Command or US Space Force, you know, provisional while we were standing up these entities. Crazy. crazy. Good crazy though. Good crazy. Fun crazy. I loved it. Uh, and I was responsible for the reserve component of all of that too, right? So how are our reserves, you know, being Air Force reserves being employed as part of this whole activity and organized, trained, and equipped as part of these activities. So that got me fully ingrained, you know, as a space uh, officer, you know, so I earned my badge as a space officer during that time frame. 
so in my career, I started out as acquisition officer, then became a communications slash cyber officer, and then at the tail end of my career, space officer. As we were standing up the Space Force headquarters in Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon, General Raymond asked me if I would become the chief technology innovation officer for the Space Force. So come to Washington, D.C., get that CTIO organization stood up and be responsible for space science and technology, the digital transformation or establishment of the Space Force as a digital service. How could we be more digitally oriented? How could we leverage data more effectively as kind of our going in way we're going to think, way we're going to operate? How do we equip and train our space operators to be uh, conversant in data and analytics and software and AI so they could think about how they could solve problems with these new technologies and then with industry come up with prototype solutions that they could then convey to the acquisition community to integrate in or build in as part of a future program of record. Uh, those are all the things that we did. And, and also, you know, how do you have the infrastructure that you need? You know, the networks, the cybersecurity, how do you partner with the big Air Force on how do you, you know, have all these capabilities available to you? So that's where we stood up. And a lot of those things are, are still happening today. Um, so I retired. <laughs> How did you come to that decision? How did I finally ultimately yeah, retire? Well, this retire? is like, like time number five. Time number five. But what's funny uh, is that, well, at this point, it was like I had to retire. I mean, I had gotten to the point where I reached my, my higher tenure, 35 years in uniform as a major general. Uh, you, you really can't go you know, beyond that. And you know, once you get to that point, you want to make room for other people that can come up behind you because there's only so many you know, positions available. So yeah, it was definitely time for me to retire. But it was just that interesting bookend again, right? Of I started my career way back in, in the 80s in the, my very first acquisition job in Space Command and Control Systems Acquisition. Full circle after this very circuitous path of not really having much of a plan, but just kind of volunteering from job to job, leveraging my various skill sets and superpowers and uh, taking and engineering. engineering organization. And, you know. You have a new company. I have a new company. Which we've just been pushing to the side and listening to this amazing story of an amazing career. But the career continues, right? You're a founding partner of a new company. So tell us about it. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's super exciting. Uh, the company is called Alera Nova. It's a very curious name. It is. I wanted to ask you, what is it? Why, why that name? Yeah, so Alera, E-L-A-R-A, Nova, N-O-V-A. Alera refers to a navigational instrument that sailors use to find and track the North Star. And Nova, new, bright, brilliant, you know, supernova. So... We like to say that we are the space consultancy that helps organizations find and track their North Star with a lot of burst and brilliance behind them to help them be successful. We like to help organizations advance their capabilities to advance national security space. We're 100% focused on national and really international security space because space is, is a global domain. It it's requires team sport. team sport. You know, we have a phenomenal uh, number of companies who are international partners of you know, like-minded nations that are all committed to uh, assuring uh, freedom of action and maneuver in space, not just from a national and international security perspective, but such that we can have a vibrant space economy, 
of commercial activity in space that can support operations on Earth and, uh, and in space itself. So yeah, Alara Nova. So we're here to help uh, companies, industry partners, small, medium, and large around the world uh, advance their capabilities. We're here to help countries. You know, there's a lot of countries that are trying to figure out how to stand up a space force or how to have a, a space agency and how Has to grow their space. Has a country reached out to you to stand yes. up a space force? Several. Oh, go on. Who? Just, well, we've been the regions. To, we've been talking to several. There are several that we've been in contact with that are really eager to uh, interact with us and, and work with us. Uh, and then, you know, we're working very closely with uh, our own U.S. government. You know, we're interested in helping our government figure out because we know about some of the challenges that still exist. How do we really get innovation across the but finish line? Are you line? saying just because you retired that it's not done? It was not done. There's a lot of there's a lot of great work that's been done. We know there's a lot of uh, work that's not yet done, and you know we want to help advance that and help uh, help solve those problems too. So that's what we do. Uh, we do strategy. We do. Uh, you know, capability planning. We help organizations, you know, better position themselves for success. Sometimes they have really great capability, but they don't convey it very well in terms of how do they present themselves or understand how they align with the needs or, you know, uh, meet the needs more effectively. Do they have great partners or are there other partners that they could work with? And, you know, the, the environment is changing very quickly. You know, the market's changing. Uh, the needs are, are changing, so there's there's a lot of opportunity out there, but uh, companies need to figure out ways to you know, really position themselves to continue to grow and advance uh, in this in this environment. So yeah, we're excited to do it, and that's what we do. Kim, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Laura, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for letting me tell my story. Uh, thank you for letting me talk a little bit about Alara Nova. Uh, it's an exciting, uh, you know, we saw a need in the market for executives that have experience who could come together and, and, um, and help, you know. I mean, I'm just one of now four founding partners. We'll have a fifth founding partner later this year, but we all have deep experience in space. Uh, and uh, our senior principal advisor, General John Hyten, other senior principal advisor, General Les Lyles, uh, myself, Eddie Papson, Roger Teague, uh, Mike Dickey, we all come from the space environment, both on the defense side as well as IC. We've got folks on our team that come from commerce and NASA and industry uh, who can all bring our expertise and capabilities to bear to help uh, address these challenges. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vaga Maradian and listen to Cavus Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.